Thanks, Latia. Um, I have no more introduction to say um, other than thank you for um, inviting me here. As Latia said, I got to know her through our work with the Poor People's Campaign, um, I think starting back in 2017. Um, and excited that Latia and Charles are headed out to DC this week to, um, to represent our community with the, the mass um, low-wage workers, um, mass mobilization in DC. So my name's Jessica, and um, as Latia said, I work at Central Seminary. Um, I'm on staff there. Um, before that, I pastored churches, one here in Kansas and then a couple other places. Um, and Latia asked me to talk tonight about um, God and country Christian nationalism, um, which fits into part of what um, the work of the Poor People's Campaign is about. And so I'm coming at this topic kind of from that angle. Um, the Poor People's Campaign is working to address um, poverty, systemic racism, militarism in the war economy, ecological devastation, and the distorted moral narrative of Christian nationalism. So that's where we're at today. So what I'm hoping to do today is kind of talk a little bit about um, what is Christian nationalism, but come at it through the lens of um, the Roman Empire and what was happening in, um, in around the time of Jesus and when the Gospels were written um, and what was happening within the Roman Empire that really influenced that. And from that, kind of taking a look at Christian nationalism and what are some parallels um, to what we're experiencing today. Okay, there we go. So first, um, what is nationalism? So before we even get to Christian nationalism, what is nationalism? And very simply, um, it's just a movement that promotes the interests of a particular nation. Um, it's not necessarily patriotism, it, it, it's different than that. Um, and it can serve as both liberatory, liberative freedom, um, and it can serve as oppressive. Um, it's uh, used to unite people toward a cause, usually around ethnicity or ideology or religion. And it can come from the bottom up or it can come from the top down. Um, and when it's used by the ruling elites, when it comes from the top down, it's often, uh, we see that manifest um, in colonial ways and using tactics of divide and conquer. So um, if you think about nationalism as about uniting a group of people around one thing, um, so that means we're excluding people that don't belong to that, right? And kind of dividing and conquering in different ways. And we'll see that uh, tonight as we talk a little bit about the Roman Empire and Christian nationalism. So some examples of nationalist movements, um, Gandhi's movement for liberation in India, um, but also the Rwandan genocide. Um, and then as we'll talk about tonight, the Roman Empire and Christian nationalism today. So this is a quote from Cynthia Kaufman from her book, Ideas for Action. And I wanted to focus in on this now, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later when we get to talking about Christian nationalism. Um, but it, it really, I think, captures um, how nationalism works. So nationalist leaders will develop a story of the group that, that they're organizing that focuses on heroism and historical achievements. There's usually a strong element of pride building in nationalist movements, and they attempt to foster group solidarity by emphasizing the inherent hostility of oppressive forces. So again, it's that divide and conquer, right? So um, by emphasizing the in inherent hostility of people out there, then we can um, 
coalesce around our group here. Oops, I forgot my notes. So today we're going to, um, these, the, it, it talks about at the beginning of this quote, the nationalist leaders develop a story. So that's what we're gonna talk about today is these stories, um, which, are, which are narratives, right? So we're gonna talk about the narratives of the Roman Empire, the realities of what was happening in the Roman Empire, and then the narratives that the Roman Empire, how they talked about those realities, but then the counter narratives. And then we'll do the same thing with Christian nationalism, the realities of today, um, the narratives of Christian nationalism, and then uh, counter narratives that we find. And I just said that. So realities of life in the Roman Empire. This is a map of the Roman Empire. Um, at the time of Jesus's birth, Caesar Augustus was emperor. And so everything in green was what the Roman Empire was at that time. Um, but it, obviously it was an ex continued to expand after that, but really covered a lot. Um, it was an expanding empire with near universal poverty, except for the highest elites. And it was run through a slave economy. So slave, um, people became slaves by birth or by conquest. All of these lands had to be um, conquered, right? And so people became slaves in that way or by poverty through owing debts. And then you become enslaved to pay off those debts. And Rome itself and the elites in Rome were unimaginably rich while the rest, while most of the people that lived in these lands um, experienced incredible poverty. Um, but they were rich by taxing people in all of these lands um, and then uh, through tr became rich through trade in these areas as well. So this is one of the realities of the Roman Empire is this major um, difference between wealth and poverty um, and very few, um, very few um, wealthy elites and just immense poverty and slavery across the board throughout this massive area. And that massive area became um, under the control of the Roman Empire through, through violent conquests. It was a, um, a very violent time. Um, so this is a picture here of a mass crucifixion. So often when we think of the crucifixion of Christ, we see one cross or we see one cross with kind of two behind it. Um, but mass crucifixions um, happened pretty regularly. And one of the main historical facts that we do know about Jesus um, is that he was crucified. So other, other sources outside of the Bible talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, as well as the crucifixion of masses of other people. Um, so people who were condemned to crucifixion were tortured, beaten, whipped, burned. They were marched through the streets carrying their cross and, um, and publicly humiliated. And if that sounds familiar, um, that we read that in the gospel, that, that, that's what happened to many, many, many people um, who were crucified. Um, crucifixion was usually reserved for bandits and revolutionaries, insurrectionists. So basically anybody that threatened the Roman social order and the, and the power structures of the day. Um, but it was incredibly common. Uh, when Titus was emperor, for example, and conquered Jerusalem, a key tactic of social control was crucifixion, with as many as 500 people a day being crucified. And that's where we see this picture here, just of rows of crosses of crucifixion. Public crucifixion was usually a great damper on a popular movement. So if there was a popular leader that was getting a following, um, then that would be squashed through crucifixion, both as a way to, um, 
to take out that leader, but then also as a way to say, this is what happens if you try to do this, if you try to um, go against the Roman Empire. So this is also one of the realities of, of Rome. So we have mass poverty, we have violence and um, crucifixion. Oops, did I? Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so let's talk about how the Roman Empire then talked about those realities because that, they didn't talk about it in that way. Um, so one of the narratives of the Roman Empire is that um, this violence um, through conquering lands, through mass execution and mass poverty, they called peace. They called it Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. And um, this was, a, this was a, a kind of a theme that was used to talk about the work of the Roman Empire for a couple of centuries, but especially under Caesar Augustus, who was emperor when Jesus was born. Um, he actually wrote in his own, he wrote about himself to be read at his, after his own funeral, um, or at his own funeral, I'm sorry, about the many things he accomplished for peace. And he wrote, I undertook many wars, civil and foreign, by land and sea in every part of the world. And as a victor, I took it upon myself to pardon all the citizens who sought mercy from me. Um, so he talked about himself as this great um, hero like we saw in, in the quote earlier from um, Cynthia Kaufman, a great hero who conquered these lands, but then you know, pardoned, pardoned anyone who sought mercy. But the reality it was that most people's experience under the Roman Empire was not one of peace and prosperity. Um, there was a historian, Tacitus, who lived just a little while after um, Jesus, likely when the gospels were being written um, who lived under the Roman Empire, and he wrote about vis Romana instead of um, Pax Romana. So he wrote about Roman power instead of Roman peace as a way to kind of flip that on its head. And what he wrote was, the Romans call it empire. It is, in fact, murder and profit. They make a desolation, and then they call it peace. And so we see this, actually. Um, this is uh, an example of something that was built um, by Caesar Augustus, and this is called the Altar of the Peace of Augustus. Actually, and it was built after he conquered um, what is now Spain and France. And it says Pax Romana on it. So this is supposed to be like a tribute to um, him being a, a peaceful emperor. It's basically public propaganda about the Roman Empire and Augustus. And one of the other things that's important to know about the emperors under the Roman Empire, um, and there's different imagery I won't go into all of it, partially because I don't know all of it. Um, but, I mean, there's just lots of really intricate um, imagery in there, and it all means something very important. But one of those things is that um, the emperors were called um, titles like Savior and Lord and Son of Man and Son of God. Um, and so these were the titles that, that were bestowed upon emperors. That's how they talked about themselves, and that's how they were expected for others to talk about them. Um, And so we see this here. Um, I mean, we can see some of the imagery in there. So this whole thing is called the Peace of Caesar Augustus, and then there's images in there about him calling himself the bringer of peace. And another example here, this is the, tarch, ar, sorry, the Arch of Titus, um, which was built to commemorate how the Roman Empire squashed the Great Revolt of Judea. It was built in 81 CE. And what it shows is um, it's, it's kind of a victory arch of the Romans 
to show um, basically this parading of the holy relics back to the Jerusalem temple, back to Rome. Um, within this, rev- this revolt, when, when Rome squashed this, um, millions of people were killed and 100,000 people ended up enslaved. And, and this is basically to commemorate that um, from uh, Emperor Titus. This is also some public propaganda, um, kind of saying this is what happens if you try to fight back, if you, if you try to revolt, if you try to um, get a bunch of people to, to raise up, this is what will happen. Um, Augustus was also a master of divide and conquer tactics. Um, even among those who were loyal to him, um, he kept social and political groups uh, united to him, but divided among themselves as a form of social control. And that was very important within the Roman Empire and the way that it operated. And he particularly did that um, among social cla- different social classes and the military. So, so far we have these narratives, we have the realities of Rome, which is mass poverty, um, and um, violence. And then we have these narratives of Rome of uh, peace and that the emperors are the bringers of peace. Um, one of the other narratives of Rome was about um, charity and benefactors. And so um, this says the wealthy were even able to enrich themselves directly off of the poverty of the poor, particularly in times of disaster. So benefactors would come to the aid of a city during famine or economic crisis or natural disaster, and then be recognized or honored for their generosity. And still, they were able to make money off of the crisis. So there's one example of a time during a famine where there was an elite man from a Greek island. Um, And so this famine covered this whole island. Um, And he decided to lend the other um, residents of the island money at a 20% interest rate so that they could buy grain from him at 10 times the regular price. And he was perceived to be a savior in a time of crisis. He was lifted up um, as the one that saved the island and the people of the island. Yet uh, he not only profited off of that exchange, but caused people to go further into poverty um, through their debts. And so the debts of the poor became a source of wealth and income for the rich. So again, we have this kind of juxtaposition of the realities of what was happening in the Roman Empire versus the way that the elites in the Roman Empire talked about it. And then we have the counter-narratives of the Jesus movement. So um, within our scriptures, what we see is, um, uh, so under under this, um, this context of Pax Romana, then Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in, you may, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And often um, the scriptures that uh, talk about peace, specifically where Jesus is talking about peace, we often hear those or are taught that those are about kind of individual inner peace, um, which may be true, but if we think about this in the context of the Roman Empire, all the violence and all of the um, conquering that's happening and the mass poverty, uh, we can really see that that, that peace is, is probably um, a social peace and, and talking about the social order. The other thing that um, happens a lot in the Gospels is that Jesus is referred to by the same names that the emperors are referred to. So we see a lot that Jesus, uh, you know, he t- t- says these parables where he turns narratives on their head all the time, right? The first will be last, um, the lost will be found. Um, we're familiar with those a lot, but... Um, 
some of the more subtle ways that this happens throughout the Gospels too is are all of the names that, um, that Jesus is called or refers to himself, which are a lot of them are words that are supposed to be reserved for the emperors, um, the bringer, bringer of peace and the savior of the world, the son of God. Um, and then we also see in the scriptures anti-poverty programs. So these are direct counters to the mass amount of poverty that was happening um, under Roman rule. So in Acts 4, the sharing of all things in common, a project of survival in which people come together because they can't survive any other way um, because of the mass poverty. Um, this uh, chapter in James says, Woe to the rich who have failed to pay the workers their wages. And this passage in Revelation is about um, the merchants being in distress because no one will buy their goods anymore. So we have these anti-poverty programs, so these counter-narratives of Jesus that go um, really speak to the realities of what's going on and kind of cut a hole right through um, the narratives that Rome is trying to put forward. So that's the context through which we're going to look at um, Christian nationalism. But before we get there, we'll just have some discussion. Um, we can start out around our tables and then maybe um, share out from there. So what surprises you about the realities and narratives of the Roman Empire or the counter-narratives of Jesus or what doesn't surprise you? about it, and what seems familiar or similar to our context today. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've been talking about at your tables. Um, so if you would like to, if someone from your table would like to just uh, share out your discussion, that would be great. Um, there's no pressure to. Um, but if anyone would like to, that would be awesome. Okay, awesome. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Other thoughts? We were yeah. all really surprised that the Roman emperors were being called like the son of God. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Did everybody hear me or do you want me to repeat it? Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. We were all really surprised that the Roman emperors were being called the son of God and we were talking about um, how like Pontius Pilate when he was asking Jesus if he was the son of God and I was like wow that makes the, the context of that a lot more high stakes than yes. what I ever knew so yeah that's exactly right question, yeah. yeah and um Jesus kind of answers that question in different ways in the different Gospels, um, but really avoids, in all of them, avoids the question, like avoids answering that question um, because of, like you're saying, because of that heist, that really means something different when you um, yeah. kind of know that piece, yeah. Any other thoughts or insights? Yeah, Charles. Oh, what, you were saying, what's your name? 
Josh was saying that the IMF and the World Bank are similar to the Greek guy because they create, um, countries have to pay back the IMF and the World Bank instead of having that, and it takes away the social service and safety net, so they end up creating more poverty than healthy. Yes, yes, that's an excellent example, yeah. I thought too of um, kind of early on in the pandemic um, where um, we were all rightfully applauding essential workers, um, but kind of giving them applause, but not giving them a living wage and protections and like all these things that, um, that, they, that they need and deserve. Um, but so like this, this narrative of let, you know, let's all applaud, um, but, uh, but not do the, the real things that matter for people's lives. Great, so um, taking all of that, um, knowing all of the context of that, because the context of what happens, um, what happened in the Roman Empire and the context of Jesus's ministry in the Gospels obviously influences um, how Christianity came to be in the US today and so influences a lot this conversation on Christian nationalism. So we're kind of gonna go through the same um, three um, frameworks here of today's realities. Um, narratives of Christian nationalism and defining what that is and then counter narratives of the Jesus movement. Um, so some of today's realities are um, that there are over 140 million poor and dispossessed people in the United States, which this was before the pandemic, 43.5% um, of the US population, that 13.8 million low-income households can't afford water, and 4 million families with children are being exposed to high levels of lead. Meanwhile, um, we spend $635 billion on military spending while 23,000 active duty military troops receive food stamps. And so all of that is information from the Souls of Poor Folks audit of the poor that the Poor People's Campaign did back in um, 20, I think 2018. And these last two points here are since the pandemic. So COVID-19 death rates in the lowest income groups were twice as high as death rates in the highest income groups in the country. And particularly during the Omicron phase of the pandemic, black adults were nearly four times as likely to be hospitalized and experience increased risks than white adults. And this, those two are from a poor people's pandemic report. We actually could go on and on and on and on and on here about today's realities. Those are just a couple of, of points there because we could talk about healthcare and police brutality and gun violence and racial disparities among ac around access to healthcare during COVID and essential workers. And we could talk about um, January 6th and the Jericho marches and attacks on democracy and voter suppression. So those are all of today's realities and more. And just like in the Roman Empire, um, we hear narratives um, that don't address these realities and instead attempt to cover them up and perpetuate them. And one of the, those, some of those narratives come from Christian nationalism. So before we get into some examples of Christian nationalism, it's, it's good to talk about what that, what that is. So there's a group called Christians Against Christian Nationalism, and they define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life, um, that Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian nationalism is a framework of thinking that demands, framework of thinking that demands Christianity be privileged by the state and implies that to be a good American, one must be a Christian. 
and I would add a certain type of Christian to that. Um, so re researchers that have been studying the movement of Christian nationalism have found that about half of the people in the U.S. Su um, subscribe to some elements of Christian nationalism in some way. Um, and in many ways, because we've been socialized into these narratives, right, that um, these narratives of white supremacy and of, um, of coming in and conquering lands that aren't ours. Um, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris of the Poor People's Campaign um, reminds us, too, that um, people that um, subscribe to Christian nationalism aren't just kind of our neighbors or our relatives. I don't know if you have neighbors or relatives, but I do. Um, that, uh, that are, you know, kind of pull on to some of these pieces of Christian nationalism, but there are also major power structures at work. And we see that um, with, the, with um, particularly on full display right now uh, with the January 6th um, hearings. So Reverend Liz Theo Harris, um, I'm quoting her now, she said, under Trump, such religious nationalism has reached a fever pitch as a reactionary movement that includes tech technocratic billionaires, televangelists, and armed militias, which has taken root with a simple message that God loves white Christian America, favors small government and big business, and rewards individualism and entrepreneurship. Meanwhile, the poor, people of color, and immigrants are blamed for society's problems, even as the rich get richer in what's still the wealthiest country in the history of the world. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about Christian nationalism. So we'll take a look at a couple recent examples, and we may all have more examples to add, so we'll talk about that too. So the one that is most just shocking to me was, um, came from the Republican National Convention in 2020, and um, then Vice President Pence concluded his remarks with these words. He said, so let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire. Let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom and never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if some pieces of that sound really familiar, it's because there's lots of pieces in there that have been drawn from some New Testament texts, especially from Paul. So in Hebrews 12, we see... Um, where it says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So if we go back to this piece from Hebrews, though, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Um, Pence says exactly those words. And then says, let us fix our eyes, not on Jesus, but on old glory. So literally took a Bible verse, took out Jesus's name and replaced it with old glory. And if that's not just like, in your face example of Christian nationalism. I don't know what is. Um, and again, I want to uh, remind us of that quote that we read at the beginning from Cynthia Kaufman, who said that nationalist leaders will develop a story of the group that focuses on heroism and historical achievements with a strong element of pride building, and they attempt to foster group solidarity by emphasizing the inherent hostility of oppressive forces. And so we see this happening in Pence's quote here, where he's using the Bible um, and using, replacing Jesus's name with old glory. Another example, of course, um, in the news a lot lately is um, January 6th. These are some pictures taken from that day. 
um, with signs um, that just show the way that Christian nationalism was merged into what happened on that day. Um, and before the, the, before the attack on democracy, before the rally that happened, before that, there was um, something called the Jericho March, which was a march of religious leaders. It happened that morning, the morning of January 6th. Um, this picture here with the cross um, are some of those religious leaders that participated in the Jericho March and then went to the rally um, and then on. Um, for another example, there was a book called Forgotten Country that was that was written and the review on Amazon says, Forgotten Country is not just required reading for the 2020 election, it is required reading for every conservative Christian who loves America and wants it to return to its Christian values. So this merging of, um, the, like we, we saw in the definition of Christian nationalism, this merging of that to be American is to be Christian and a particular kind of Christian. Um, so here are some of the narratives of Christian nationalism, and we've touched on these, some of these already. But again, to be a good American, one must be Christian. Um, another one is that white Protestantism is the keeper of democracy and freedom. There's um, an author, I can't remember his name, but it starts with an H. Um, but he, he wrote about this um, particular point and um, about how uh, white Christianity, Protestantism um, in particular, um, needed to be uh, supported by the state, um, supported by governments, um, so that democracy can thrive. And that was the only way that democracy was going to thrive in the US. Um, and then that fr freedom um, under Christian nationalism narratives is often defined as individual liberties and rights. Um, so often, narratives of Christian nationalism, and, and this wouldn't be, I, I talked about how earlier researchers have found that over 50% of the people in the US kind of identify with some piece of Christian nationalism. Um, a lot of that is because we've been taught this is a Christian nation. Um, and so phrases and words and narratives like that kind of become embedded. Um, but there are some strands of Christian nationalism that, that then really end up intersecting with things like nativism and white supremacy um, in, in really concrete and dangerous ways. So after looking at some of the narratives of Christian nationalism, let's move into some discussion again. What are some of the narratives that, of Christian nationalism that you've witnessed or experienced or heard about? Um, and then going back to this quote from Cynthia Kaufman, who are the heroes um, that Christian nationalism talks about? And how does the movement of Christian nationalism build pride among its followers and foster group solidarity? So if you wanna talk a little bit about your tables and then we'll come back together. I hate to interrupt the conversations you're having at your tables, um, but I'd love to hear um, and hear some share outs of, of those great conversations um, so that we can all benefit from some of what you all shared. So would anyone like to summarize a little bit of what you all talked about? I was eavesdropping and I heard really good things, so I know good conversations were happening. Okay, so we um, talked about, you know, the um, kind of icons in the Christian nationalist uh, movement, sort of like Ronald Reagan and Reaganism. Mm. 
like the NRA, like John Wayne, kind of as being an icon of masculinity, mm. Charles Houston, to um, kind of also like that white guy, mm. white fruit guy. Yeah. That's great. Really good examples of that, that heroism story um, that's wrapped up in those I, narratives. I didn't even think about this, but thinking about like the 94 crime bill, like I think we could argue that Bill Clinton's another one. Because mm, mm-hmm. uh, that's definitely like with his super predator language. Yeah. Uh, it definitely was, we know who the oppressive force was, mm-hmm. even though that was totally false. Um, yeah. Yeah. And same with the, uh, along in that era, um, with the wiping out of welfare and the myth of the welfare queen and all of that was all part of that rhetoric and um, yeah. policies at that time too, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, stay with me on this one, I promise it'll make sense, but um, Martin Luther King Jr. in a way, not because he is a Christian nationalist at all or was, um, but the things we have learned about him, like when I was growing up or whatever, like I never would have, guess that he was, you know, that he said so much stuff against, you know, um, you know, capitalism and, and all this kind of stuff. Like his, the way his teachings have been extremely whitewashed and like, uh, you know what I'm saying? But like, yeah, I think, I think it's really insidious the way that like the things he stood for have been kind of just kind of stripped down to like something really palatable. Um, and probably that wouldn't have been possible if uh, he hadn't been killed. So, uh, you know, if he was, well, he probably wouldn't still be alive today. But, um, you know, if he had been alive into the 80s or, uh, you know, however old, um, that probably wouldn't have been possible. So. Yeah, and what's, I think, really brilliant about that example is um, is because this, this is part of what... Um, narratives of nationalism or empire do is to, to take what is, um, what is radical or revolutionary that would threaten the social order and take it out and recraft that narrative differently. And that's exactly what has happened with Jesus. And that's what the Christian nationalism movement is doing and has done. Um, and, and, and same with, with Dr. King. So I think that's a, a brilliant example. Any other thoughts? <coughs> Mm-hmm. And it's a complete contradiction to what Jesus, the, cause, the kingdom of God, is a reign where everyone is welcome at the table. It's a radical inclusiveness. And Christian nationalism is so divisive. And then at the same time, living in postmodern times, the belief now is there is no truth, there's no objective truth. So you can't even argue in public, or not argue, but have an interaction with a person thinking, well, this is my truth, mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, uh, prosperity Christian, and the other person you know, can be a radical follower of Jesus, but there's, there's no longer a fair discourse. Yeah. It's like, no, we're equal. And there is no objective truth anymore in, in postmodern times, and that is devastating the gospel. Yeah, thank you. And and what you mentioned, too, about um, the prosperity gospel. I mean, if we think back to what we saw in today's realities um, and knowing the number of people living in poverty, um, 
low income without a living wage. And so this prosperity gospel then is, is this other narrative that, that doesn't match the reality of what most people are living in. I come from a partially evangelical background. And somehow along the way I got signed up for a Billy Graham magazine. I don't know how. So the last time I, I got one, I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to see what some of it has to say. And obviously Billy Graham's not alive anymore. But so much about supporting Trump and all of that. And I mean, do you want an example of Christian nationalism? Wow. Um, yeah. So, and it's just like being an evangelical Christian and supporting Donald Trump to me should not be one and the same. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the way that that had merged together, and, and it, it had merged together even before 2016, but wow, is it just like on this path now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, oh yeah, go ahead, yes. please. This wasn't something you talked about, but what Daniel was saying reminded me of this quote of Audre Lorde that I read the other day. Um, and she said that grief is endemic to revolution because the sort of change that is like that matters happens longer than an individual lifetime. Um, and I think that the way that like a lot of leaders of really important work get like reduced to like a really simple story of triumph has a lot to do with an inability to like sit with that grief. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's really powerful. And it's a good, I think, transition to, I mean, it made me think anyway, when you were um, mentioning that quote about um, the things that we're striving for may not happen in a lifetime, right? Um, so I don't want to leave us tonight without some words of hope, um, because there are counter narratives to this narrative. Um, and those narratives are, are the good news of today. Um, so like Jesus and the disciples and Paul and the early church, there is a movement from below that's happening today um, that follows in the ways of Jesus also um, to counter not just Christian nationalism, but also the um, injustices that Christian nationalism perpetuates, injustices like poverty and systemic racism, militarism and war economy and the distorted moral narrative and ecological devastation. So these are just some pictures specifically from the Poor People's Campaign, um, just because that's, uh, that's my crew. But there are movements like this um, in our communities and there are movements like this that you all know about and are involved in that are, that are the good news, um, that are, are countering these narratives of Christian nationalism in the same way that the Jesus movement countered the narratives of the Roman Empire. And so we hold on to those words of good news and, and keep working um, keep working in those ways of peace. Um, thank you. It was really great to be with you tonight. <laughs>